So in front of you, you've got a chart and about halfway through, I'm going to stop and go through that just to give you the context what this is all talking about so you get the big picture of what's happening historically. Today, it's Ezekiel, chapter 17, the parable of the vine and the two eagles. Who likes riddles? Well, God uses different ways of communicating through Ezekiel. Sometimes he's an actor. He's acting his message out, and sometimes he uses riddles and parables. Often he uses parables, but this one's a riddle and a parable at the same time. So I'll pray and we'll get into it. Lord, thank you that you are a good God. Thank you that you are merciful and gracious. Thank you that you are faithful, that you keep your promises to us. And Father, we just want to praise you for the fact that we can trust you, that what you say is always true. And Lord, help us not to forget how important that is, Lord, how important it is to be trustworthy as we think about that today. I can't imagine what it would be like if I couldn't trust your word. Lord, I pray that we can be trustworthy people to reflect your nature and your character. So we pray this in Jesus' name. So, let's do a memory verse. Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Awesome. Now, last week in chapter 15, we covered the whole chapter and basically the summary is we are only useful if we are fruitful. There's no other purpose for our life. And one of the key phrases or the key sentences was, remembering all that God has done for us leads to gratitude, which leads to or results in obedience, which leads to or results in a fruitful life, which glorifies God. So it's all about bearing fruit, fruit of the Spirit. And in chapter 16, we saw this fantastic demonstration of God's grace. And for example, Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So, for 59 verses, there's a long chapter, chapter 16, God details all the sins of the nation, sexual sins, persistent unfaithfulness, a degenerate heart. And then at the end, when you think God's going to slam them and say, that's it, what does he do? He says, nevertheless, it's just incredible, nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you I will provide you an atonement for all you have done, says the Lord God. So, it's not what we're expecting. And what it does for us is it shows that there's no sin that is too great for God to forgive. And we looked at Romans chapter 5, verse 21. It says, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Literally, super abounded. But we also cover the fact that it's not a license to sin. If you want to follow that up, just look at the sermon notes from last week. So this week, the parable of the vine and the two eagles. So a quote from Morgan. 
In the allegory of foundling, that's talking about the young girl, in the previous chapter, Ezekiel was dealing with the spiritual and moral malady of Israel. In this message, he was concerned with her political folly and wickedness. So it's gone from the moral aspect to the political and how that wickedness is demonstrated politically. And so the parable of the two eagles and the vine is a picture of Israel's treachery and broken promises both to God and to Babylon. So let's read the chapter. The first part is a riddle and the second part is the explanation of the riddle. So as you read, kind of get the gist of it and then as it goes through the explanation of the riddle, of the parable, you try and put it all together. So Exodus 17, 1-24 And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, pose a riddle, and speak a parable to the house of Israel, and say, Thus says the Lord God, A great eagle with large wings and long pinions, full of feathers of various colours, came to Lebanon and took from the cedar the highest branch. He cropped off its topmost young twig and carried it to a land of trade. He set it on a city of merchants. Then he took some of the seed of the land and planted it in a fertile field. He placed it by abundant waters and set it like a willow tree. And it grew and became a spreading vine of low stature. Its branches turned toward him, but its roots were under it. So it became a vine, brought forth branches, and put forth shoots. But there was another great eagle with large wings and many feathers. And behold, this vine bent its roots towards him, and stretched its branches towards him from the garden terrace where it had been planted, that he might water it. It was planted in good soil by many waters to bring forth branches, bear fruit, and become a majestic vine. Say, thus says the Lord God, will it thrive? Will he not pull up its roots, cut off its fruit, and leave it to wither? All of its spring leaves will wither, and no great power or many people will be needed to pluck it up by its roots. Behold, it is planted. Will it thrive? Will it not utterly wither when the east wind touches it? It will wither in the garden terrace where it grew. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Say now to the rebellious house, Do you not know what these things mean? Tell them. Indeed, the king of Babylon went to Jerusalem and took its king and princes. So here's the explanation. So the first eagle is the king of Babylon and took its king and princes, and led them with him to Babylon. And he took the king's offspring, made a covenant with him, and put him under oath. He also took away the mighty of the land, that the kingdom might be brought low, and not lift itself up, but that by keeping his covenant it might stand. But he rebelled against him by sending his ambassadors to Egypt, that they might give him horses and many people. Will he prosper? Will he who does such things escape? Can he break a covenant and still be delivered? As I live, says the Lord God, surely in the place where the king dwells who made him king, that's a king of Babylon who made Zedekiah king, whose oath he despised and whose covenant he broke, with him in the midst of Babylon he shall die. Nor will Pharaoh with his mighty army and great company do anything in the war, when they heap up a siege mound and build a wall to cut off many persons. Since he despised the oath by breaking the covenant, 
and in fact gave his hand and still did all these things, he shall not escape. Therefore thus says the Lord God, As I live, surely my oath which he despised, and my covenant which he broke, I will recompense on his own head. I will spread my net over him, and he shall be taken in my snare. I will bring him to Babylon, and try him there for the treason which he committed against me. All his fugitives with all his troops shall fall by the sword, and those who remain shall be scattered to every wind. And you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken. Thus says the Lord God, I will take also one of the highest branches of the high cedar and set it out. I will crop off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and will plant it on a high and prominent mountain. On the mountain height of Israel I will plant it, and it will bring forth boughs and bear fruit, and be a majestic cedar. Under it will dwell birds of every sort, in the shadow of its branches they will dwell. And all the trees of the field shall know that I, the Lord, have brought down the high tree, and exalted the low tree, dried up the green tree, and made the dry tree flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken, and have done it. So let's take verses 1 and 2. Called these two verses a riddle and a parable. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, pose a riddle and speak a parable to the house of Israel. So again, God is always using different ways of communicating to the people of Israel. They are spiritually dull and they need to be woken up. So God does what he can to wake them up. So, what is a riddle? It's a puzzle. It needs to be answered. You need to work it out. That's what a riddle is. It's getting them to think, what does this mean? It's picking their curiosity. But being a parable, it's also a story that illustrates spiritual and material truth. And a quote from Bloch, The manner in which plants and animals relate in the story, carrying on as if they were humans, would have amused any audience and undoubtedly contributed to the prophet's reputation as a spinner of riddles. You can see that reference there in Ezekiel 20.49, where they call him a spinner of riddles. So, verse 2 says, to the house of Israel. So, again, you have to look at the context to see who this is referring to. Is it the whole nation of Israel, or is it just the southern part? This is just the southern part. It's referring to the kings of Judah, the southern kingdom. And we're going to go through the chart. So this is the big history, the big picture for this time in history concerning the nation of Israel. So the 70-year Babylonian captivity is basically started in 605 BC and finished in 536 BC. Now, notice the numbers are getting smaller. That's because they're negative. So when you're looking at BC, it means before Christ. So as we're talking about the years, just remember that the numbers are getting smaller, but they're actually getting bigger because it's negative, getting closer to zero. There's my maths teacher coming up. So basically, in 605 BC, you have the 70 years, so that's on that top bar. And basically, the three attacks or three invasions, the three lots of people taken captive, 
The first one was in 605 BC, the second in 598, and the third in 587. So there's three waves of deportations. So, for example, Daniel was taken in the first one, Ezekiel was taken in the second one, and only very few people survived the last one. So what we're looking at today is the time between the second attack on Jerusalem and the third. So if you can see that bottom blue bar, it's got the three attacks on Jerusalem. Can you see that? All right. So we're looking at that time period. So we go into that. Now this chart is fantastic. It's got lots of different references to archaeology, like the Babylonian Chronicles, Battle of Carchemish, the Cyrus Cylinder, when basically Daniel reads the Bible to Cyrus. Isaiah wrote it like 200 years before. Isaiah prophesied that Cyrus is going to set my people free. So Cyrus becomes king. Daniel says, this is what the prophet Isaiah said 200 years ago. Reads it out, and he goes, wow. And he sets the people free. So there's a lot on this, so I'll leave you to study that in your own time. But what I wanted to point out is just where it fits. So we're looking at the time between the second and the third invasion. And it's referring to the second invasion where the twig is taken to Babylon. We'll get into that in a minute. So a quote from David Guzik, the parable describes the events between the time of King Jehoiachin's exile, 597 BC. So Jehoiachin was taken to Babylon as a prisoner and Nebuchadnezzar placed Zedekiah on the throne of Judah. Now, later on, Zedekiah revolted against Babylon because he trusted in the promise of Egypt's help. Okay, so that's the context here. Zedekiah was under oath to the king of Babylon, but he trusted in the promise of Egypt's help. And so he turned his eyes, he started turning his branches and his roots towards Egypt, seeking help from there because he didn't want to submit to the Babylonians. That's a big picture. So a quick review of world history relating to Israel at this time, the rise and fall of the world powers, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, and the Medes and the Persians. So it's a little complicated because there's actually a lot of changes going on at this point in history. So go back to when the northern kingdom was still around and the Assyrians were the world power. And they were the ones who defeated the northern kingdom of Israel back in 722 BC. There was a three-year siege on Samaria, and that was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. But, as happens, kingdoms come, kingdoms go, yeah? So, God used an alliance of nations to finally destroy the Assyrians. And that was finished at the Battle of Carchemish. There was a series of battles, and this was the final one. So I'll just read a quote from Wikipedia. The Battle of Carchemish was fought about 605 BC between the armies of Egypt, allied with the remnants of the former Assyrian Empire, against the armies of Babylonia, allied with the Medes, the Persians, and the Scythians. This was while Nebuchadnezzar was commander-in-chief and Nebuchadnezzar was still king of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar became king right after this battle. So 
Then 70 years later, Babylon is defeated by the Medes and the Persians in 539 BC, three years before the Jewish exiles go home. So that's basically what's happening with the nations. Who's rising, who's falling, who's being defeated, who's winning kind of thing, right? So Babylon was only a world power for about 70 years. Only a very short time. If you know Daniel, it's the head of gold. And the Medes and Persians were the chest and arms of silver. And it goes on. So now, the kings. Here's another thing we need to understand. A summary of the kings of Judah around the time of the three Babylonian exiles, or the invasions. So the dates on there are when they ruled as king. So we'll start with Josiah. This is before all this happened. Now, he ruled from 640 to 609 BC, and he foolishly challenged Pharaoh to a duel, my army against yours, and he lost. And God told me he would, but because of his pride, he went into it. Now, Jehoaz, he only reigned for three months. He was made king in place of his father, Josiah. But the Egyptians took him to Egypt after three months, where he later died, because they had defeated the nation of Judah, and they became a vassal state to Egypt. Now, when Jehoaz was taken to Egypt, the pharaoh made Jehoiakim the king in his place, the vassal king. Now, he had to pay tribute to Egypt, and he reigned for 11 years, but Sometime during his reign, or about halfway through, in 605, Babylon defeated the Egyptians and Jehoiakim then became Nebuchadnezzar's vassal servant. And so he stopped paying tribute to Egypt and he had to pay tribute to Babylon because Babylon had defeated Egypt at the Battle of Carchemish. And so now Babylon is the world power. Babylon is in control. Babylon is calling the shots. And Nebuchadnezzar, as we just read, is the king of Babylon now. Not just the commander-in-chief, but the king. Now, Nebuchadnezzar let Jehoiakim remain as the puppet king. He took a lot of the other people away, all the soldiers, all the tradesmen, all the, you know, if it was today, you'd be taking all the IT people, all your skilled workers. That's what he did. And he left the nation without its top workforce, basically and without its leaders. It was a subdued, weakened nation. Jehoiakim makes his oath, and he promised to be faithful to serve the king of Avalon. But he didn't. And three years into serving the king of Avalon, Jehoiakim rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. But before Nebuchadnezzar could come and tell him off, he died. And so his son, Jehoiachin, takes over, and... It's not a good place to leave your son because guess what happened? Nebuchadnezzar's on his way. There's a one-year siege and Jehoiachin just says, you know what, this is not going good. The prophets are telling them to surrender. So he did. And so he surrenders and him and all the royal family are taken to Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar then puts Zedekiah as the puppet king. So this Zedekiah is who the parable is talking about. So he was put in power by Nebuchadnezzar after the second invasion, 
but he also eventually rebelled, again looking to make an alliance with Egypt. And Nebuchadnezzar by this point is getting quite frustrated, and so he comes back the third time and he says that's enough and completely destroys Jerusalem and the temple. And again, this treachery, this deceit, this breaking of promises and trying to form an alliance with the Egyptians during the time of Jehoiachin and Zedekiah is what Ezekiel is describing in his riddle parable. Jehoiachin is the one who was taken to Babylon and Zedekiah is the one who breaks the oath. And there's a chart there with the five kings. It's got some more information, so I'll just skip that. So hopefully you understand now who's ruling. is now the Babylonians who have taken over from the Egyptians, and Israel for a while has been a vassal state. They've had their king, but they had to pay tribute to these foreign powers. So let's read verses 3 to 6. And say, thus says the Lord, and this is about the first eagle. This is... Babylon or Nebuchadnezzar. So as you try and solve this riddle, the interpretation was already given. So the interpretation is that Babylon or Nebuchadnezzar is the first eagle. And say, thus says the Lord God, a great eagle with large wings and long pinions full of feathers of various colors came to Lebanon and took from the cedar the highest branch. He cropped off its topmost young twig and carried it to a land of trade. He set it in a city of merchants. Then he took some of the seed of the land and planted it in a fertile field. He placed it by abundant waters and set it like a willow tree. And it grew and became a spreading vine of low stature. Its branches turned toward him, but its roots were under it. So it became a vine, brought forth branches and put forth shoots. So what's the answer to this riddle? Well, a large eagle comes to Lebanon. Lebanon represents Jerusalem. The king of Babylon came to Jerusalem. The highest branch is the person with the most authority. That's the king and his family, King Jehoiachin. They're taken to the land of trade, which is Babylon. Then he plants some of the seed of the land and plants it to become a low-spreading vine. So this is Zedekiah. He takes some of the seed. He's a relative of the king, makes him the puppet king, the vassal king, and it's a low vine. It's a subdued Judah. They've lost their army, they've lost their educated workforce. Economically, they're not going to do very well. And they can't really defend themselves. And fourthly, the branches of the vine were turned towards this eagle, but their roots weren't. So on the outside, they were saying all the nice things. They were pretending to be loyal and pretending to be friends with him. You met people like that before? But inside the heart, no, they didn't like him at all. They hated him. They were pretending to like him. But while they remained loyal and continued to pay tribute, they grew and prospered. So Nebuchadnezzar, this pagan king, was faithful to his word. But Israel, the people of God, were not faithful to their word. It's a bit of an oxymoron, isn't it? Let's read verses 7 and 8. This talks about the second eagle. This is Egypt or Pharaoh. But there was another great eagle with large wings and many feathers. And behold, this vine bent its roots. Now who's the vine? Judah. Yep. Called Israel in this parable. So, But there was another great eagle with large wings and many feathers. And behold, this vine, 
bent its roots toward him and stretched its branches toward him from the garden terrace where it had been planted that he might water it. It was planted in good soil by many waters to bring forth branches, bear fruit, and become a majestic vine. So, what can we learn about this second vine? Well, does this eagle do anything for the people? Nothing. It's just there. The vine, Judah, southern kingdom of Israel, bends both its roots and branches to this other eagle. They are willing to be loyal to this king and this kingdom. Now, Israel, Judah, had already been planted by the first eagle, Babylon or Nebuchadnezzar, but they were completely ungrateful. And what they wanted, Judah wanted, was the second eagle, Egypt or Pharaoh, to water it, to nurture it, to protect it. They wanted to be free from the Babylonians. And I quote here, The vine did this, Israel did this, in the hope that the second eagle, Egypt, would care for the vine, protect it, and give it the right conditions for growth and prosperity, which it already had under the first eagle. They already had what they needed to survive. They had this promise, this oath they'd made with the king of Babylon. But they broke it. The hope for a result was that it would become a majestic vine. That's what they wanted. They weren't happy to be a low-spreading vine. They wanted to become a majestic vine. Not to be under anyone's domination or dominion. So, a quote from Bloch here. In the absence of any other explanation for the vine's action, the audience is left to reflect on the vine's ingratitude and stupidity. If they've already been provided for, why would they go looking elsewhere for what they already have? Now, quick application here. Are you familiar with Psalm 1? Blessed is a man. Yeah. So, basically, we need to put our roots into the Word of God. We need to have a deep, strong relationship with God if we are going to be able to survive the storms of life. And not only to survive, but to continue to bear fruit. If we sink our roots into anything else, if we turn our roots, turn our affections, remember talking about our hearts, turn our affections to something else, we're going to be weak. We have to worship God with our whole heart. Sink our roots into our relationship with Him. Make that the most important part of our life and not be seeking other things, seeking other people, other things to meet our needs. Now, verses 9 and 10. What happens to the vine? Say, thus says the Lord God, will it thrive? Will he, that's the king of Babylon, not pull up its roots, cut off its fruit, and leave it to wither? All of its spring leaves will wither, and no great power or many people will be needed to pluck it up by its roots. Why? Wasn't going down deep. Behold, it is planted. Will it thrive? Will it not utterly wither when the east wind touches it? A picture of the coming war. It will wither in the garden terraces where it grew. So what's going to happen to the vine, to Israel, Judah? Is it going to thrive if it's been unfaithful and disloyal? No way. The first eagle, Nebuchadnezzar, will pull up its roots, destroy its fruit and leave it to wither. And why would not much be required to pull it up? Well, the roots didn't go deep into the soil. Instead, the affections, their hearts were toward Egypt. 
And the second eagle, Egypt, will not be able to protect it from the coming storm, which is the Babylonian invasion, the third one. So that's the interpretation there. Now we come to the interpretation as it's written. The meaning of the parable and the two eagles. So this is what we've just applied to the riddle. So I'll read verses 11 to 15. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Say now to the rebellious house, Do you not know what these things mean? Tell them, Indeed, the king of Babylon went to Jerusalem and took its king and princes and led them with him to Babylon. And he took the king's offspring, made a covenant with him, and put him under oath. That's Zedekiah. So he took Jehoiachin to Babylon and made a covenant with Zedekiah. He also took away the mighty of the land. Again, your armed forces, your best workers, that the kingdom might be brought low and not lift itself up, but that by keeping his covenant it might stand. So he was making the nation of Judah dependent on Babylon. Verse 15, But he rebelled against him by sending his ambassadors to Egypt. Zedekiah rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. By sending his ambassadors to Egypt, that they might give him horses and many people. Will he prosper? Will he who does such things escape? Can he break a covenant and still be delivered? So, let's look at what God has explained here. The first great eagle is the king of Babylon. Yep. Lebanon is a picture for Jerusalem. The highest branch of the cedar represented Judah's, what position did he have? The king and his princes. So that's Jehoiachin. The seeds and the vine represented the king's offspring. And that's Zedekiah. Now the first eagle, who's that? Babylon, yep. Made a covenant with Zedekiah and put him under oath. The first eagle, who's that again? Babylon took away the mighty of the land, and so not only the king Jehoiachin and his family, but also other notable men like Daniel and his companions. And why do you do it? To keep the nation low. And so that Zedekiah would keep his covenant, he wanted him to have to depend on Babylon for their defense. It was a bit like Japan for a long time with the United States after the Second World War, you know. Japan didn't really have a military that could attack. They had to depend on the United States. It was part of the agreement. And so that's kind of what I'm thinking here. They've taken all the mighty away. And so if something happens, they can't really defend themselves. And so they have to depend on the king of Babylon. Which is pretty good. For 70 years, they were pretty strong. And he would have kept his promise. So... The first eagle makes a covenant. Babylon, or Nebuchadnezzar, makes a covenant with Zedekiah. He takes the mighty away. And the king of Babylon took them with him to Babylon. And that's the city of merchants. And it is, really, because it's on two rivers. And you've got the sea. And basically, it's a central place of commerce. And just as the vine stretched out its roots and branches toward the second eagle, so Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon by sending his ambassadors to Egypt, the second eagle. So Zedekiah hoped for horses and many people from Egypt. And I adapted that from David Guzik's commentary. 
So Feinberg says, regarding the second eagle of Ezekiel 17 verse 7, this was Egypt, specifically Pharaoh Hophra, who came to the throne of Egypt in 588 BC. To him, Zedekiah foolishly looked for help to throw off the Babylonian yoke after he had been befriended by Nebuchadnezzar. So, verse 15. Will he prosper? Will he who does such things escape? And a quote from David Guzik. When the vine in the parable turned to the second eagle, it had great hope of life and vitality. See verse 8. These rhetorical questions reminded all that the vine would find no help from the second eagle, and Zedekiah would find no help from Egypt. Now, what is Egypt a picture of in the scriptures? It's a picture of the world in the scriptures. It was a sinful place. It was a picture of the world. So, the application here is that the world, represented by, here by Egypt, will never be able to help you in the way you really need help. It only offers band-aid solutions and not permanent solutions. And like Egypt did, they made all these promises to Israel, but did they do anything? Did they help Israel? Did they help the kingdom of Judah? When the Babylonians came, did they help? Did they keep their promise? Of course not. So many times in the scriptures, Israel depended on Egypt instead of depending on God. And guess what? Many times they were let down. They always wanted to go back to Egypt. That's our nature too. We want to find our strength, our hope, our satisfaction, not in God, but in the world, in Egypt, so to speak. So the world promises everything but gives nothing. And that's the picture we get here is one of the applications. A couple of verses, and this verse is actually word for word in Second Kings 18.21 and Isaiah 36 verse 6. Now look, you are trusting in the staff of this broken reed, Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh king of Egypt to all who trust in him. So they had a reputation among the nations of making promises and not keeping them. Yeah, we'll look after you. But they never did. This is what the world does. Jeremiah 6.14. And this is the context is the false prophets. But the world does this too. They have also healed the hurt of my people slightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Band-aid solutions. No healing. So going back to verse 15, can he break a covenant and still be delivered? Keeping vows is really important to God. Keeping our word, being faithful to keep our word is really important to God. Zedekiah is here identified as a covenant or promise breaker. So, application for us, we need to keep our promises, both to God and to other people. Psalm 15 verse 4 is a good verse to summarize this. It starts off with, In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. So, what does someone who fears the Lord do? Well, he keeps his promises. Even if he swears to his own hurt, he will not back down on that. If you make a promise and you realize, actually, you know, 
But I promised I'd sell you that car for five grand. I just realized it's worth 20, but you know, I made that promise. Have the car for five grand. I'm going to keep my word. So both Jeremiah and Ezekiel accused him of disloyalty and urged submission to Babylon again. And you can read the references here in Jeremiah chapter 37 and chapter 38. And that was by right. Another quote from Feinberg. Zedekiah was surrounded by favorable conditions for his reign. So think about this. He was surrounded by favorable conditions for his reign, represented in the power by the fruitful soil, the many waters, and the planting as a willow tree. The benevolent, that means good, attitude of Nebuchadnezzar helped Zedekiah to prosper in his rule. If he had remained faithful to his oath of fealty to Nebuchadnezzar, the kingdom of Judah could have continued to prosper as a tributary kingdom. That's the option that God gave them. But they refused. They wanted something better. They weren't content. We're going to come back to that in a bit. Verses 16 to 18. As I live, and this is how God sees Zedekiah, as I live, says the Lord God, surely in the place where the king dwells, who made him king, that is Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, whose oath he despised, Zedekiah despised, and whose covenant he broke, with him in the midst of Babylon he shall die. So Zedekiah will be taken to Babylon and will die in Babylon. Verse 17, Nor will Pharaoh with his mighty army and great company do anything in the war when they heap up a siege mound and build a wall to cut off many persons. So Babylon came and besieged Jerusalem. That was the third invasion. Since he despised the oath by breaking the covenant and in fact gave his hand and still did all these things, he shall not escape. So this is like the year before the invasion actually happened. It hasn't happened yet, but God is saying it will happen. You're finished. You've broken your promises. You're a covenant breaker. Verse 16, with him in the midst of Babylon he shall die. So it's true, it did happen. Zedekiah did suffer because of his infidelity, his, his disloyalty. He had his eyes put out after the king of Babylon killed his kids in front of him. So the last thing he saw was his kids being killed. And then he remained in Babylon until his death. So what Ezekiel was predicting here did come to pass. And another prediction is that nor will Pharaoh with his mighty army and great company do anything in the war. So remember, this is a year before the invasion. It's imminent. Pharaoh's army was big. It looked good. It promised a lot. But it achieved nothing. And this is a great picture of the world. For example, worldly counsel. If you go for counseling and get worldly counsel based on worldly principles, do you think it's really going to help you? Band-aid solutions only. Yeah? Band-aid solutions only. No true healing. Sounds good. Feels good. But it's not going to help you walk with God. And verse 18, since he despised the oath by breaking the covenant, he shall not escape. So when we seek our own way instead of God's way, we will always suffer for it. And it's usually the practical consequences of sin. In this case, Nebuchadnezzar got angry. And he wasn't a man you wanted to get angry. If you read Daniel, what happened when the three friends wouldn't bow down to the statue? He lost his temper. All right, you guys, what did he do? 
put him in the fiery furnace, seven times hotter than it needed to be. The guards died as I put him in. Temper, right? Don't get on the wrong side of this guy. Practical consequences of sin. Zedekiah made the wrong person angry. Ezekiel 17, 19-21. God's judgment of Zedekiah. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, As I live, surely my oath which he despised. Whose oath? I thought this was between Zedekiah and Nebuchadnezzar. But what does God say here? My oath which he despised. And my covenant which he broke. We'll come back to that. I will recompense on his own head, and I will spread my net over him, and he shall be taken in my snare. I will bring him to Babylon and try him there for the treason which he committed against who? Me. Zedekiah's treason was firstly and foremost against God. All his fugitives with all his troops shall fall by the sword, and those who remain shall be scattered to every wind. And you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken. Again, this is a year before it happened. One year before. And as predicted, they did try and escape. All his army was scattered. He was captured. And everyone else was scattered. There was no more kingdom in Judah. Verse 19. My oath which he despised. And a quote from Taylor here. God prophetically said of Zedekiah, My oath which he despised. God regarded it not only as an oath to Nebuchadnezzar, but to him also. The implications of this attitude are far-reaching. It indicates that agreements entered into and obligations incurred by worshippers of God are as binding as if they had been made with God in person. Interesting, eh? So next time you make a promise to someone, keep it. Because you are representing God. And if you're not faithful, you're communicating to that person that God's not faithful. Verse 21. All his fugitives with all his troops shall fall by the sword, and those who remain shall be scattered to every wind, and you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken. So this is the end for the nation of Judah. God's people still remain, but not in the homeland and not with their own king. Zedekiah was the last king of Israel. until Israel became a nation again, just 1948. So, Feinberg says, as plainly as he could declare it, Ezekiel showed that Judah's political disaster was traceable to moral weakness and deceit. When once the hand was given in token of agreement, that word should have been all the bond needed. So lying and deceit and disloyalty only brings disaster destroys trust. Verses 22 to 24, this is the hope of future restoration under the Messiah. Thus says the Lord God, I will also, and notice the words, I will, a few times here. And this is talking about the Messianic kingdom, the thousand year rule and reign. Remember last week, we talked about how bad it got about their sin, and then God says, nevertheless, I will provide atonement for you. Here, in the light of this deception and this disaster, God says, I will do something. I'm going to take a twig, and you're going to find out it represents Jesus, the Messiah, and I'm going to set up a kingdom 
what you can't do, I can do. <laughs> and we have a picture of the millennial reign. So we'll get into it. Thus says the Lord God, I will take also one of the highest branches of the high cedar and set it out. I will crop off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, the Messiah, and will plant it on a high and prominent mountain. On the mountain height of Israel I will plant it, and it will bring forth boughs and bear fruit and be a majestic cedar. Now we have Israel truly being a kingdom. Okay. In the millennial reign, Israel will be the world power. Jesus will be ruling from Jerusalem. Under it will dwell birds of every sort. In the shadow of its branches they will dwell. And all the trees of the field shall know that I, the Lord, have brought down the high tree and exalted the low tree, dried up the green tree and made the dry tree flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken and have done it. Now verse 22, just come back to that. I love the way God makes these amazing promises. Not when they deserve it, when they least deserve it. So verse 22 says, I will. Okay, it's God doing it. I will take also one of the highest branches of the high cedar and set it out. I will crop off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one and will plant it on a high and prominent mountain. So again, God's grace comes to the rescue. The southern kingdom of Judah, just like the northern kingdom, had failed completely. Everything they had tried to do had failed. They had tried to do things the world's way. And what happened? They destroyed themselves. God lets them have their way. He lets them destroy themselves. He lets them be completely ungrateful and discontent with the blessings that he gave them. And in the end, he promises them a new kingdom ruled by none other than the Messiah from Jerusalem. And a quote here from Feinberg. A tender one. The tender one is the Messiah, the son of David. And there's a few references there you can look up to see that that's true. For example, Isaiah 11, 1, 53, verse 2, so on. And a high and prominent mountain. Uh, Wisby says the high mountain Ezekiel wrote about is probably Mount Zion, where Messiah will reign over his people. That's again, when he comes back, the second coming, he will reign from Jerusalem. Verse 23. On the mountain height of Israel I will plant it, and it will bring forth boughs and bear fruit and be a majestic cedar. Again, another way of describing the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year rule and reign of Jesus on earth. You see it in Revelation, around about chapter 20. Jesus' kingdom will be the end of all human government. You can see Daniel chapter 2, verses 34 to 35. And with Jesus ruling from Jerusalem and Another similar verse to this, which has the same idea, is Isaiah 11 verse 1. We just read one of those references. Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot. Yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root. So it looks dead. So imagine you're an Israelite. Your king has been taken captive. His eyes have been put out. There's no one left in Jerusalem. It's been destroyed. The temple's destroyed. The line of the kings has ended. They might think. But no, God makes a promise. It's not the end. Even though you caused this problem because of your own bad decisions, God is still going to be faithful to keep his promise. There will be the Messiah, and this is the Davidic covenant that the Messiah will come from the line of David and will reign over the world. Now when he comes back to set up his own kingdom, 
who's going to be ruling and reigning with him? Us, the church, yeah? So the nations seem to be dead, but God in his time will bring it back to life. And again, verse 23, it says, I will plant it. And I just want to point out that where man fails, God succeeds. And the quote by Taylor. After the failure of the two great eagles, Babylonians and Egyptians, to make a success of establishing the state of Israel under their extensive and powerful patronage, God says, I myself, emphatic, will plant it upon a high mountain where it will grow and be conspicuous and attract the birds of the air to shelter under its protection. So again, God will. Did they deserve this? Absolutely not. What did Deuteronomy 32 verse 32 say? Not because you're the greatest of nations, but only because I love you. So, under it will dwell birds of every sort. So under this big cedar tree. All nations, the Gentiles as well as the Jews, shall build, breed, and multiply under the kingdom of Christ. It shall no more be confined to the Jews, but extend to the Gentiles. Also, there thou shalt find peace and safety. And this repeatedly confirms the certainty of the promise. A quote from Paul there. So, verse 24, All the trees of the field shall know that I, the Lord, have brought down the high tree and exalted the low tree. Now, who's in control? of the world, what's going on? God is. A good quote here from Morgan. God is governing and there is no escape from him. Eagles and vines are under his control. Happy are those who frame their policies by consulting him and order their ways in fear. That is the fear of God. And again, Grace, quote from Feinberg, The chapter began with judgment and punishment. It ends with mercy and grace. The dethroned and blind Zedekiah is overshadowed by God's king who is full of power and glory. Kingdoms are but the length and shadows of kings. So, two applications to finish. John 15.5 I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit for without me you can do nothing. So the application here is without Christ I can do nothing. So, when are we going to learn? I mean talking to myself, when am I going to learn? Look at the effort that the leaders of Judah went to to save their nation. But it was all to no avail. So we can try and prop up our own lives and get things down our own way. It's not going to work. We have to do things God's way. Our sinful nature can't please God. And following the desires of our sinful nature only leads to death. A destroyed life. So we need to be led by the Spirit and then we'll bear fruit for eternity. Now. The main application for today to finish with is this. Be grateful, and like it says in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, in everything give thanks. Now why is this so important? Well, it's the opposite of being ungrateful and unthankful. So if you're not giving thanks, then you're being what? Ungrateful and unthankful. Will you be satisfied if you are ungrateful and unthankful? Is it possible to be satisfied and content if you're ungrateful and unthankful? It's impossible, right? So this is a really powerful verse I want to finish on. Zedekiah, he didn't show any gratitude. He wasn't thankful for all the blessings that God gave him when the nation deserved to be destroyed. But God gave them Nebuchadnezzar and 
showed them favour through Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar couldn't just wipe them out. So we need to learn the lesson of being content. God would have allowed Israel to survive as a nation in the homeland. That was his will, his command. And we read that in Jeremiah 38, 17-18. Then Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, This is what the Lord God of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says. If you surrender to the Babylonian officers, you and your family will live, and the city will not be burned down. But if you refuse to surrender, you will not escape. This city will be handed over to the Babylonians, and they will burn it to the ground. So even in the middle of the siege, which lasted just over a year, God is still offering them a way out. And if only Zedekiah had been content to be a vassal king of King Nebuchadnezzar, then he could have lived on as a humble vine, bearing fruit and being well looked after. But no. He and the other princes, they all wanted to be in charge again, not to be subservient to anyone. Now, it's not nice to be subservient to a foreign power, having to pay tribute and toe the line, but that's what was best for them. And that's the lesson we need to learn here. What is best for us? Do we know? Do I know what's best for me? Or does God? Yeah. They didn't like being subservient to Babylon. They could not accept that that was God's will for them. This is really important for us to understand the the motivation here, why they did what they did. They could not accept that that was God's will. God put the Babylonians in charge. God was organizing things to get the best possible outcome. God knows what he's doing. Now, if this is true, then no matter what situation I'm in in my life, if I really believe this, then I'll be content in any situation. Imagine if Zedekiah believed that, well, God has allowed this, it must be the best thing. Do you think he would have rebelled against the king of Babylon? No, he would have submitted, yeah? He would have been content. He would have been thanking God for giving him such a great benefactor, someone who is looking after him and protecting him. Now, what does Paul say in Philippians 4, 10-13? How I praise the Lord that you are concerned about me again. I know you have always been concerned for me, but you didn't have the chance to help me. Not that I was ever in need. Notice that? (laughs) Not that I was ever in need. It doesn't mean he wasn't in need, but this is what he means. For I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. I want to point out, this is a learned thing. How do we learn to depend on God? He has to put us in difficult situations where we learn to trust him, right? Paul learned through all the hard times he went through the secret of living in every situation, which is to depend on God. But we never learn to depend on God if we have all the other things around us. So God takes those things away. It could be our finances, it could be relationships, it could be lots of different things. But we don't know that Christ is all we need until Christ is all we have. And so it's something that we learn through life, this ability to trust God and be content. I'm going to read those same verses from the Amplified Bible. It says, Not that I am implying that I was in any personal want, for I have learned how to be content. 
satisfied to the point where I am not disturbed or disquieted in whatever state I am. That's good, eh? For I have learned how to be content, satisfied to the point where I am not disturbed or disquieted in whatever state I am. Single, married, whatever, you know. I know how to be abased and to live humbly in straightened circumstances like dire straits. And I know also how to enjoy plenty and live in abundance. Now, that can be a challenge, can't it? I think it's easier to be poor than just be rich. I have learned in any and all circumstances the secret of facing every situation, whether well-fed or going hungry, having a sufficiency and having enough to spare or going without and being in want. I have strength for all things in Christ who empowers me. I am ready for anything and equal to anything through him who infuses inner strength into me. I am self-sufficient in Christ's sufficiency. That's pretty good, eh? I am self-sufficient in Christ's sufficiency. When I'm depending on Christ, I have everything I need. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6 says, Let your character or moral disposition be free from love of money, including greed, avarience, lust, and craving for earthly possessions. And be satisfied with your present circumstances and with what you have. For he, God himself, has said, I will not in any way fail you, nor give you up, nor leave you without support. I will not, I will not, I will not in any degree leave you helpless, nor forsake you, nor let you down. Relax my hold on you. Assuredly not. So we take comfort and are encouraged and confidently and boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not be seized with alarm. I will not fear or dread or be terrified. What can man do to me? So God has made a promise to never leave them or forsake them. So if we're doubting God, if we're thinking that things should be better, what are we doing? We're doubting this promise that God has made to us. I will never leave you nor forsake you. It says in the Amplified here, I will not in any way fail you, nor give you up, nor leave you without support. So God has given us what we need, and when we are not satisfied with that, we're doubting his promises. And notice how it starts, let your character or moral disposition. What was wrong with Zedekiah? He was a liar, a covenant breaker. We don't want to be like that. Trust God. To keep his promises. And lastly, the last scripture is 1 Timothy 6, 6-9. Talking about contentment again. Again from the Amplified Bible. And it is indeed a source of immense profit for godliness accompanied with contentment. That contentment which is a sense of inward sufficiency is great and abundant gain. So what is contentment? It's a sense of inward sufficiency. You might be poor and not have much money, almost not have enough money to buy food, but if you're having this sense of inward sufficiency that, well, I have what I need. God has given me what I need. If I don't have that, then I don't need it. Then you have that contentment, then that's good. For we brought nothing into the world, and obviously we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we shall be content or satisfied. 
But those who crave to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish, useless, godless and hurtful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction and miserable perishing. So if you're not satisfied, if you're not content, you think you need more, what's it going to do to you? It's going to destroy you. It's going to put you into many foolish, useless, godless and hurtful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction and miserable perishing. So it's not just money, but the other desires that we have, like the Amplified pointed out before. I won't be happy or content or satisfied unless I get this or I watch that or I experience this or I get married or I have one child or then I need two children. You know, We can be in a state of mind where no matter what we have, we'll never be satisfied. Truly, if we can just learn to trust God, that whatever we have at any given moment is all we need for that moment, then we are 99% on our way to overcoming sin, especially habitual sin. I mean, what's motivating me? My addiction is just a lack of contentment, isn't it? One way of looking at it. We tell ourselves we need this thing to feel good, to be happy. It's a lie. God has already given us everything we need to be completely fulfilled and content if we would receive them. And just finished on Philippians 4.19. And my God will liberally supply, fill you to the full, your every need according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now, it doesn't say want. It says your every need. So, Father, we do trust you. We thank you that you are a good God. We thank you that you keep your promises, not like Zedekiah, not like we do sometimes. We break our promises. We're unfaithful. Help us to be people who hold true to the promises and vows that we make. Help us to recognize that you keep your promises and you promise that you will never leave us nor forsake us. And if we think we're forsaken, then we're doubting your promise. If we think we're lacking something, then we're doubting your promise. Help us to understand that we are never lacking anything. Our Father, thank you that you are a good God and every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. And we just thank you that we can trust you, that whatever we have at any point is exactly what we need. Give us this faith, we pray. Help us to be content and to have that peace that comes from that. Godliness with contentment is great gain. In Jesus' name, amen.